0: Get your library card now at tdmlibrary. dot Com. You can't stop me. Nothing's gonna stand in my way.
1: Nothing, nothing. Welcome to the Donald Thompson podcast, and today I have a
2: good friend of mine, uh, Ken Lewis. Ken is a very, very strong business person, very well respected in the legal community. And Ken, welcome to the Donald Thompson Podcast. It's great to be with you. Ken, as we talk a little bit about some of the macro events in business, what we think about how we can work and grow in the diversity, equity, inclusion space, whether it be the legal profession, whether it be business in general, I want to take a step back and allow our audience some space to get to know you. What drew you to the law?
1: So it's interesting. There were really three catalytic events in my life that drew me to the law at a really young age. The first was my best friend growing up. His father was a probation officer. And one summer, I must have been 10 or 11 years old. We went to go visit him in his office and I wandered into the back of a courtroom and spent the day watching lawyers try cases. And for the rest of the summer, I would find my way back to that courtroom and sit in the back and watch lawyers try cases. And that was really the first time I got the idea that I wanted to be a lawyer. So that was the first event. The second event was I started school in 1966. Uh, That was really at the beginning of uh, integration in the public schools in Winston-Salem there was a plan that allowed you to attend any school you wanted to attend as long as you could provide your own transportation so my parents enrolled me in a school across town that was in the best elementary school in the city and would transport me from my home to that school every morning and over the years in elementary school i began to notice the difference in the development Uh, in the part of town where I lived and the part of town where I went to school. There were movie theaters and Krispy Kreme donut shops and ice cream shops and all sorts of nice things in the part of town where I went to school. And there weren't those kinds of amenities in the part of town where I lived. And I just developed an interest. I was fascinated by that. I developed an interest in uh, why our businesses located in one part of town and not in the other. And the third Catholic event was in high school. I was a part of a group that got exposed to careers and a, a antitrust lawyer came to speak to the group. And that was really the merger of my interest in law and in business. I, I, I first learned through that uh, talk about business lawyers. And that really set me on my uh, on the path of deciding I wanted to go to college and major in business and then and go to law school. That is phenomenal, and one of the things
2: that's a thread between those three major events, right? Your education, being able to see lawyers in practice, and then have somebody come into your classroom and sew into you by letting you know what you could be, right, right. raising those horizons. And so exposure, I think, is the big word that I would take away from from how you develop that, that interest in, in law. When you think about the legal profession, and its impact on social justice. What are some of the things that people need to understand about our system of law, our system of how do we think about social justice that allows people to have a better understanding of things like systemic racism, things like uh, disparity in education? How does some of your experiences help
1: you shed light on those things that maybe most people wouldn't understand. Well, during the time that I was growing up, lawyers were very prominent in in society and in my consciousness, in part because they were on the front line of creating the opportunities that I was preparing myself to one day pursue. And so lawyers like Thurgood Marshall or Julius Chambers in North Carolina you know, were bringing lawsuits that were opening up the doors of of opportunity. And there was a lot of talk among those lawyers and in the public sphere, you know, about what the constitution guaranteed, uh, the values of the country should be, uh, how those values should be extended to, you know, to others. And that became a part of of really my framework. Uh, I went to college at Duke, and uh, the year that I got there, I learned that Duke had discontinued the the business major, undergraduate major. And so I ended up majoring in political science and really got interested in in, uh, how societies are constructed. Mm. And in a democratic society, a a society that is based upon representative democracy and a society grounded in the rule of law, uh, the law is fundamental to shaping the opportunities that are enjoyed by its citizens. And Ah, uh, the law has worked in in multiple ways in our society. The, the law has uh, enforced discrimination and disparity, but the law has also been used to to open up opportunities. And so, it's a powerful tool, really, in both directions in, in both closing down opportunities, but also in opening up opportunities.
2: Oh, that's a powerful way to think about it. So, one of the th- one of the things that you mentioned, whether it is your reference to Thurgood Marshall. Uh, Jewish Chambers, but the door opening aspect of people on the front lines and then how that transitions to really how power and progress are limited or open in our society. And the way that laws are constructed, the way that policy and government is made is very different from the conversation sometimes on the picket line. And if we don't understand how to manage both, it's hard to have that sustainable progress. And right. one of the folks that we both know, uh, Tanya Williams, that, that we both think really highly of, one of the things that she was a guest on, on my podcast earlier is she's very, very focused on people being educated on policy that will yep. last for decades. Right. While the picket line is important, there's also these other things that are done behind closed doors that we need to pay attention to, also. Right, right.
1: Exactly. So, the law is where we translate our values into rules that we agree to live by and to govern ourselves. And so, some of the things that are happening uh, in the streets and in the picket lines are really about uh, giving expression to what our values you know, ought to be or calling attention to. The ways in which our society may stray from our professed values. And so that's very important. And, and if you look at the history of the country, whether you're looking at uh, the labor movement, or whether you're looking at the environmental movement, whether you're looking at the civil rights movement or the women's rights movement, uh, many of all of those movements were amplified through public protests uh, and advocacy, uh, which helped to draw attention to the need to create some change in our society but that society was able to to achieve that change through translating those values yep. into laws that then provided the the new opportunities that were being advocated for through direct action no. so the law is a is an important uh, tool in giving expression to our values
2: no that's really important I appreciate that one of the questions as we look more from the legal side and transition into business. You were quoted in in an article in the Wall Street Journal that talked about the lack of multicultural representation in the boardroom. Talk to me a little bit about that article, that perspective, and really some things that you think can be done to make change there.
1: So the the Wall Street Journal, as are many publications now, are in the wake of uh, the George Floyd killing uh, and other uh, similar kinds of uh, killings in the country is taking a deep look into issues of diversity, not only in the criminal justice system, but also in society more broadly. And one of the, the areas that they have focused on is the lack of diversity in corporate boardrooms and in the C-suite of the largest Companies in the country. So, there's a way in which we can look at our country today uh, and compare it to 50 years ago and see a very, very different country. We we no longer are living in a society that is uh, segregated by law. People are going to school uh, in many instances, although we've had some retrenchment in this area as well but we're going to school with people of different races Mm -hmm. or interacting in the public sphere uh, at restaurants and hotels and stores with people of a variety of races. But if you were to look at the corporate boardrooms in America today and, and compare it to the 1950s, you would be shocked at how similar the corporate boardrooms in our country look today to the corporate boardrooms in the 1950s. And I think there's an increasing awareness that that is is problematic uh, for a lot of reasons. And I think the Wall Street Journal is, and other publications are are trying to understand why that is, why change has been so slow in this arena. What are some of the things that if you had the magic wand,
2: how would you make that change? Right? how would you how would you create the environment what are some of the things that you would advocate so that we get there faster so we're not or our kids or not or our grandkids 50 years from now having the same discussion
1: well the first thing I would do is I would encourage uh, leaders in the country uh, whether they are, are corporate leaders or, or political leaders but leaders of the country and the and members of uh, society more broadly, to take a really fresh look at why there hasn't been more change in this space, you know, than there has been. To really whiteboard it the way you would in a in a business environment, where you really where you you try to step away from whatever your assumptions may have been, whatever you have uh, the common understanding may be, pull the curtain back and really uh, do a situation analysis to say, you know, what is the actual situation here? And I think if, if we did that, one thing that we would see is that the pool of available talent to, have, to complete a diverse board of directors is wider and deeper than it, is, than it has ever been in the country's history. That uh, because of the changes in laws and the changes in society that have occurred over the last 50 years, access to educational opportunities have grown tremendously in those 50 years. And African-Americans and women and other people of color have taken advantage of those educational opportunities. Uh, They have entered corporate environments in numbers we've never seen before. They have achieved success in the in those corporate environments in a way that wasn't available to prior generations. And so we have a, a tremendous pool of available talent out there to have a, a more diverse boardroom. So I think that's one thing. Secondly, if I had the magic wand, I would wave it and have a broader seg- segment of society understand that this is not just a fairness issue. Uh, this is not just about being fair to people, that this is an issue that I believe that is fundamental mm. to what we're going to be a vibrant economy, a dynamic economy, a growing economy in the future, that, that in order to, to maximize the value creation available to us, that we're going to have to tap into uh, the enormous diverse talent that exists in the country. And it's through people working together, bringing to a problem, a set of uh, diverse experiences and ideas and problem solving approaches that we unlock uh, a dynamism that will create uh, the next explosion of growth in our country. And in our corporations. And so I want people to see this, not only as a as an issue of, of fairness, but also an issue of growing the pie in a way that will be beneficial for everyone in our society.
2: Oh man, that is, the analogy of growing the pie is really, really important. As I work in this space and in, in try to be a positive beacon for diversity, equity, inclusion, there is this concern if I make available opportunity for someone else, that means there's less opportunity for me. So how, you, you mentioned growing the pie, but how do you articulate to someone that has that kind of concerning view? And it's a real concern that middle-aged white men in particular, right? they're like, more opportunity for women, more opportunity for black people, more opportunity for Latinx, more opportunity for this. What about
1: me? Yeah, Yeah, how, how do you have that conversation? That's a real issue, and I think again in my in my hypothetical sort of magic wand and my whiteboard, i think I think if we were identifying what the problems are uh, then I think one thing we should we, we we should identify is that we have that part of our history includes a way of seeing the world in a zero some way hmm. that that is part of the the history of the country. And so this thinking that if someone else is, is winning, I'm losing, I believe is tied to our history where we uh, divided opportunities and provided them to some and not to all. And some of that's around race and some of that's around gender, but it's a way that we operated in our country from the beginning. And so these ideas, I think, of zero sum are ideas that continue to exist as a part of our culture. And I think the first way that we address those ideas is to identify their source and identify that this is not truth. This is just a legacy of a society that divided opportunities and provided them to some and not for all. And then I would encourage people to think about the other part of our legacy as a country. And this is the part of our legacy of a country that I think is the pathway to the great opportunity for all that exists. If you think about America, the idea of America, let's talk about the just the idea of America. The idea of America is a place where everyone can flourish, a place where there is freedom of opportunity a place where people can come from all over the world and give expression you know, to their uh, unique talents and achieve based upon their talent. That's the idea of America, right? That's not, you know, we wrote that down in our fundamental documents, uh, but then we, we also adopted a, uh, a set of practices that divided and provided opportunity to some and not for all. So these two things have coexisted in our country from the very beginning: the idea of a place where anyone can succeed based upon talent, and uh, a reality where we divided people and provided opportunity to some and not, for, and not for all. But if we can, if we were to get back to the original idea and create a society that really provided an opportunity for all. The basic idea of America is that, is that the human spirit and human capacity unleashed from chains, unleashed from uh, dictators that suppress free expression, that that will unlock the highest human potential. And I think that is still available to us now. In fact, I think that is the key to our, our future success But in order to get there, we're going to have to rid ourselves from some of these old ideas that are the legacy of our departure from the original idea of what America could be.
2: Mm. That is powerful. I mean, both in terms of what you said, but the ease of understanding the way that I was able to accept it, because most people can get behind the original idea of America. And if we start with that original idea, then it's easier to accept that we've gotten off track. And how do we then get back on track to that original idea of America? And I think that the way that our communication mechanisms are set up, there's so much financial prosperity in negativity, and there's not as much money in unity. And so therefore people are incented to get groups mad at each other (laughs) all the time and so we've got to create an environment in my opinion where more clear minds can speak openly and disagree strongly but do so from the framework of how do we get back to this original idea of America and that's that's really really cool i appreciate the way that you you articulated that ken when you think about your experience as a, as a business person as a lawyer working with leaders of all different backgrounds different company sizes how have you learned to operate being the only one in the room? How have you learned to navigate and continue to grow and prosper? Right. And, and I don't know if you still do it, but if I go into a crowd of 10 people, 20 people, 200 people, I still look around and see if there's somebody like me. I can't, it's built. I I just still do it. What advice would you give to those that are learning how to navigate
1: when they're the only one in the room? Well, you know, you know, it's interesting. It's, I have been in that situation so frequently over the last. This is my 33rd year of practicing law, and so I have been in that situation uh, so much. I still notice it, but it, but it's it's such a common experience now that that it's um it's it's almost become normalized. Which I hate to say that, but it's, it's So I'm almost surprised when I see someone else. I'm I'm happily surprised. but I'm almost surprised when I see someone else in the room. I'll I'll tell you a funny story. <laughs> A bit of an aside, uh, but this this gives me this makes me think about this. But when I started practicing 33 years ago, I started at the largest law firm in North Carolina, and I was the first African American associate hired at this firm. And it was in in Charlotte, big firm on the 30th floor, you know, first and 32nd floor, and 30th floor of this uh, office tower. I had been there for maybe a month or so, and I was in the men's room and I was startled because I saw another African American. And then I realized quickly that I was looking at my own reflection in the mirror. (laughs) And that was really, that was really startling to like realize that, wow, I'm in such an environment here where there's no one, you know, (laughs) that looks like me. But I'm startled to even see myself. <laughs> <laughs> that is like, that is hilarious, but
2: that's what makes me think of uh, another narrative that I think we've allowed, you know people of color and to deal with is this negative narrative of who we are and what we can become. There's one thing for people to hold you back. There's one thing to have systemic structural things make it harder. And then there's this ability to listen to a school counselor that says Johnny can only go to a two year trade school. He doesn't really have the aptitude to do this. Uh, Jenny would be better off if she put away X, Y, Z and just went to maybe maybe you can be something uh, that's a you know, you don't need to be an engineer that might be a little bit too much for you. Right. There's there's a lot of math if you want to learn how to do that computer stuff. And so one of the things that, that your success amplifies is you can become what you dream. And one of the things that you based on knowing you and what you described had a strong family influence about achievement. What do we do? What do you and I do? What's our responsibility for those that don't have that set up? That we continue to give them the opportunity to dream bigger, bolder, and not hold themselves back.
1: Yeah. No, that's, that's a very powerful point. And I think it actually relates to how would I would, how I would, you know, answer this question about being the only person in the room. I think it really starts with having a firm grounding in, in who you are and just understanding that, you know, that you know, you know, who you are. And, and I, I just can't overemphasize that. And I, I agree with you entirely that, that I was very fortunate to grow up in a family that was a very strong family uh, with very supportive parents who really impressed upon us to understand who we, who we are, right? And to uh, not be defined by, by society to not be defined by by how others may see you, but to have your own definition. I think that is that is fundamental. And so for those who don't have the benefit of having that sort of family structure, they have to find a way to build a sense of self and a sense of, of who they are and to ground themselves in that. One of the things that I tell young people is that the the most important decision you will make in your life—it's not, you know, you know, whether you go to college or not. It's not, you know, it's not who you marry. It's not what job you take. The most important decision that you will make in your life is your vision of yourself that you adopt for yourself. Like, what is your vision of you? And that decision about how you see yourself will drive all the other decisions that you make and you have the ability to adopt for yourself, your vision for yourself. That is within your control. Now I don't suggest that that's, that it's easy to adopt a favorable view because we are all influenced by our environment and society has lots of ways of trying to tell you who you are and, and what you should dream. But ultimately that vision of yourself that you adopt for yourself is within your control. And so, you know, so I try to get people to understand that. And then I try to do what I can to to try to expose people uh, to possibilities in their lives so that as they are thinking about their vision for themselves, they are constructing a self-image and a self-vision, you know, that embraces all of their possibilities and is not limited by, uh, what society may uh, say about them, mm. Ken. That was uh,
2: that was a lot. That was powerful, and I'm going to repeat it just for amplification, not to try to do anything better. That the the biggest decision in your life is creating your vision of you, and it's something that you can control. And the thing that about winning in life is there are so many things that are outside of our control. So you've got to make sure that you control what you can and win in that moment. And part of that winning is with self. And that goes back to, to what we were talking about earlier and not adopting the negative narrative, right. That someone else puts forward. And your vision of you is the most important decision that you'll make. I love it. I, you know, we wanted to take 30, 40 minutes today. And I, i like to pride myself on knowing when to land the plane and that is a very very good way to to cap this the last kind of question or two so within that statement what are some things that you use you recommend you've read that give you that inspiration that that continued good good seed right to continue that positive narrative right so what are what are some of the places where you get good insight Business, good insight, political, good insight, spiritual. If you're open to to sharing some of those things,
1: yeah, no, that's what that, that's a good question. Well, I'm a I'm a voracious reader, so I'm always I'm always reading books, and and I I like to read a variety of books, but I have read a lot of a lot of uh, biographies and autobiographies, uh, in part because I want to I want to know the stories of people. Uh, you see. People who are successful, and seems like as though that was just inevitable—that they're, that they were just meant to be successful. But when you read their stories, you, you realize that that they're just like you. That they're that they're—they have strengths and weaknesses. They have uh, wins and losses. You know, they have fears and insecurities. They have you know, things they're confident about or not. You know, they are human, and that we all are human and involved in the human experience. And I find that to be inspiring. You know, I, I also it helps me to build my own resilience when you when you realize that life is not truly easy for anyone. That everyone has has challenges, and your challenges may be different uh, than others. But no one uh, escape, escapes their challenges. That that reminds me of my son. My my son was six or seven years old, and we were. Uh, this is my dad was still alive. We were in church. And my dad was uh, giving a sermon, and he was talking about everyone has a cross to bear. And he was expounding on that point. And my son was sitting between me and my mom, and he said to my mom, who he calls Grammy, "Uh, Grammy, you know, I don't have a cross to bear. And she said, keep living. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, he he's now in medical school. I think he probably has found his cross along the way. Um, That's awesome. Uh, but it's, you know, life is challenging. And so I, I read about people who've overcome challenges and I find inspiration you know, in that. And I read just a variety, about a variety of people. Uh, I, I think having, uh, you know, I am a spiritual person. I, I think that, you know, having something that, a place in your life where you can go for solace, you know, and a restoration, you know something that allows you to, you know, to you know, to see beyond what exists immediately and have some hope for, for something better. You know, whether that be religion or some other practice that you have, I think that's important. I think you have to create change. You have to first be able to envision it, and so I think having cultivating an imagination. You know things that help you to imagine what can be, and then. Combine that imagination with work on how to cr- bring it into fruition. we We need more people like that who who can imagine a future that doesn't exist. And I think that's one of the ways that I uh, sustain my hope is by having an imagination about what can be uh, and then working toward that. And so so that so that's that's the advice I would give. I'd say, uh, read the stories of others. They're, you know they they will inspire you. Develop a sense of of hope, however you you derive that, and cultivate your imagination of what it is you want to see, and then find to create it. That
2: was awesome. I tell you what, whether it is growing the pie so that we can all be involved versus a zero sum game where there's a winner or a loser, whether it is understanding when you're the only one in the room remembering who you are. To your points around the most important decision is your vision of you. I've got a couple pages of notes. Uh, I am thankful that you're willing to spend time and knowledge uh, with our listeners, and I'm cheering for you. I'm pulling for you in all that you're doing, and you are part of the reason that I'm inspired. And we're getting to know each other better, but we also can cheer and see what each other's doing from afar. Yeah. And uh, and I'm really excited about what you're what you're putting in for all of us. And yeah. uh, Appreciate it.
1: Well, I just want to say just how proud I am of, of all that you have done and are doing. From the your success in business, you know, to your reaching back to try to provide some breadcrumbs on how others can achieve similar kinds of success, you know, to the inspiration you provide to young people and who are starting businesses and, and mentoring them and helping them along their way, uh, to providing uh, this forum for people to talk about the important issues. Uh, that uh, exist in our society. You're making a tremendous uh, a difference here and I'm really proud of what you're doing. I'm happy to be you know, invited to, to come join you and, and do my little part to help you uh, do the great things that you're doing.
2: All right, my friend, listen, I wanna be careful with your time and respectful. This has been great. Like this is, this is some, some good nuggets and this won't be the last that we reach out and we do some things together. And so I want to, I want to thank you for your time, uh, but this was awesome. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. If you're looking for more information on how full service podcast production can amplify your voice, build your community, visit EarFluence.com. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon on the Donald Thompson
0: podcast.